Hey, everybody. We want to thank you all who have supported the show. And anybody who is interested in supporting the show can check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash xchateau, or you can find the link on xchateau.com. We have over 100 episodes, and by becoming a patron, you can get access to 100-plus episodes. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we're going to be discussing and exploring how a multi-generational family wine business can be successful. And our guest is Ale Wente, VP Marketing and Customer Experience, fifth generation wine grower. Welcome to the show, Ali. Thank you for having me. So I was wondering, you know, obviously, Wente Vineyards is in Livermore Valley. It's been around since 1883, and you're the fifth generation of the family to run it. Could you please give Peter and I a brief overview of Wente Vineyards, a brief history, how big is the business today, and your overall background? Yeah, absolutely. So to start at the beginning, Wente was founded in 1883 by my great great grandfather who was a German immigrant and came to the U.S. looking for family in the late 1800s did not find them and continued west as many were doing and wound up working in the Napa Valley for a gentleman by the name of Charles Krug. He then had an opportunity to found a winery in Livermore, which at the time the Livermore Valley was a really comparable wine region to Napa Valley and had many winemaking and wine growing pioneers early on that had settled in Livermore. So he came, he started his business and, you know, fast forward today, we're run by the fourth and fifth generations of my family. We're really going through an interesting time right now where the fifth generation is now really all in active management and leadership roles. And the fourth generation has transitioned to being board members. And so we're going through a changing of the guards through the generations, but it's an exciting time, I think, for our business. And, you know, when I talk about our business because we've been an operating winery for 140 years next year. I always like to say that there's a different legacy that each generation has really left on the business. And that's the easiest way for me to tell the story. You know, obviously my great, great grandfather founded the business, but you know, the second generation is most well known for bringing Chardonnay to California back in 1908 and 1912. And so really sort of propagating what is now the Wente clone and a really widely used clone across California for Chardonnay. The third generation, my grandfather bought our Arroyo Seco property and really pioneered the Arroyo Seco growing region at a time where they weren't growing grapes down there in Monterey. And the fourth generation really focused in on a sense of place. You know, they helped write the AVA petitions for Central Coast, Arroyo Seco, San Francisco Bay, Livermore Valley. So they really took a hard look at how are we talking about where we're growing wine and our connection to our roots and our land. We've always considered ourselves farmers. And they also spearheaded our experience business, really bringing wine to life through food and wine, concerts, a championship golf course, And so today as a fifth generation, I like to joke, big shoes to fill, but there's a lot that's come before us. And so I think, you know, what we're really focused on is sustainability. Absolutely, though, I think that's been a kind of a core foundation of our brand story throughout time. If you're not running a sustainable business, you won't have one to pass to the next generation. That's just basic knowledge. But for us, it's, you know, how can we grow that and improve upon it? How can we have 
Wente family estates be one of the best places to work in wine. And so really focusing on company culture, making an organization for the future, and then innovating. You know, in the past, we really are Wente Vineyards. And today we're so much more than that and trying to grow our business and be more and appeal to more customers and consumers across the board. So yeah, we're we're just scratching the surface, but I think we, we're going to, you know, hopefully, I like to say that Wente is the oldest startup in the history of startups, because to me, it feels like there's so much more we can do and we're just getting started. So, you know, to another 140 years, we'll see what we what we come up with. Just to give everybody who may not be as familiar with Wente Vineyards, how big is the business day, like number of, number of SKUs that you have, uh, number of bottles you make? Wow, number of SKUs that we have, a lot. <laughs> Between our wholesale business and our direct-to-consumer business, we make a lot, a lot of wine. But I would say we have our Wente Vineyards brand, which is, you know, roughly six to 700,000 cases in itself. Then we have our Amiriad as well winery, which is a boutique winery here in the Livermore Valley. Gorgeous. If you haven't been, you should come. We make Hayes Ranch, Angels Inc. Pinot Noir, which is one of our new innovations, a Central Coast Pinot that is fabulous and doing incredibly well for its third year of life that it's now in. Um, we make Ravelin Stitch, which is a Central Coast Cabernet, also somewhat of a newer brand that we've come up with. And then, you know, we make a lot of small lot wines that you can find just at our tasting room that are exclusive to those businesses. So if you were to add all that up, roughly what production volume would be? It's largely Wente Vineyards. So I'd say probably at a total today, we're probably around 800,000 plus or minus cases as a business. Okay, with when they taking over. And and so obviously you grew up with the family business, but what is your background? Because obviously it seems like the fifth generation has taken on like different parts of the business. I'm curious on how you got into marketing and customer experience. Yeah, great question. I was a journalism major, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and I wanted to be a TV news reporter. So when I was growing up, my dream was not to work in wine. I was a very independent young woman, and I didn't want anyone deciding how my life would go besides myself. So I went to school for that. I was walking around campus with a camcorder in hand and a tripod in the other. And I had an internship when I graduated college in a news van every single day, going around the Bay Area doing stories, and kind of at that moment realized that maybe I could find something else that... I liked doing a little bit more than that. You know, I think the the glam that you might think of news was gone pretty fast when I got on the ground and realized what it would be like. And so I, I lived in San Francisco at the time and I was a foodie at heart, love wine and food, you know, going to different wine countries on the weekends, going to all the new restaurants and thought, why am I fighting wine? It's something that I love as a passion for myself and my life. And why not work for that too? So I got connected to actually a woman named Michelle Perry, who used to oversee the luxury wine division at Constellation Brands. And I went to go work for her. And so I worked at Constellation for about four or five years. And after that was recruited by my family to come back and work for them. Kind of skipped over a part. I had a job after college that was completely random and worked in land development. And yeah, who knows? It was, it was like a blip on the radar for a few years, but found my way back to wine and never been happier than I did. 
shows you how small the uh, wine world is because I've worked with Michelle too. <laughs> Have you? She's yeah. amazing. Yeah, at, at Rome. So I've also met Nikki in San Francisco once at a bar in the marina, but uh, after we're maybe um, too tipsy at tips, Tipsy Pig to really have much recollection, but. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm giving a speech at a wedding this weekend and I have a reference to the Tipsy Pig in my speech. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> We've there all you been go. too tipsy there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we'd love to explore how family businesses work and stay in line over multiple generations. You mentioned, I think your great, great grandfather worked for Charles Krug and that, you know, Mondavi family did not stay together and has two major branches now. Funnily enough, uh, that's also Robert and Peter Mondavi. So hopefully Robert and I don't have that same type of <laughs> split. But have there been any splits from the Wente family over five generations? Are there other like businesses that were started up in this in the wine industry? Well, first of all, I used to be the brand manager for Robert Mondavi Winery for years. So <laughs> I know that feud too well. No, you know, we're a little bit boring, I guess, when it comes to splits or or family feuds over wine. We have been really lucky that we have not had to split the business in any way. And I think a lot of that kind of comes down to our family tree, if you really think about it. And I was actually even just looking at it before this, just to think through some of this. And I was like, you know, it's because CH20 had three sons, four girls, seven kids in total. But CH is our founder, my great, great grandfather. And he had two sons who were interested in his business. The other actually went on to be the president of Bank of America. So he was like a very well-to-do banker. And Ernest and Herman of the second generation took a lot of interest in the business and took it on. Herman was the winemaker. Ernest was a viticulturalist. Herman was more business, you know, so they split the business like that. And Herman didn't have any children and Ernest did. So Ernest had my grandfather, Carl. And so again, it's just like the the passing down of the business, you know, there wasn't tons and tons of people to split it with, I guess you could say. So he passed it down to Carl. Carl's three kids are... Phil, Eric, and Carolyn, which is my dad, my aunt, and my uncle. And then they've passed it down to their children, which is now, you know, us of the fifth generation. And there's six of us in total, five of us, which work for the business. Now, the six works for Southern Wines and Spirit in Dallas. So we'll see what happens with that. But I think I see the writing on the wall eventually. So we all you know, have been really lucky, I think, in that there hasn't been a ton of hands. And we all have had a really you know, joint vision for what the point of the business is. And I think to the generations that came before me, the point for them was to enjoy what they did for their life. You know, they, they loved wine. They wanted to have a viable, wonderful business and to enjoy their life. And then they wanted to pass the business down to the next generation. And it made it easy, you know, when there wasn't many, many, many of them to do that with. No exponential growth of the family, which happens in a lot of families if you have three or four kids and they have two or three kids and then you normally have exponential growth. So that's a big difference. Yeah, no, it it definitely is. And I think it makes it a little cleaner and easier, at least, you know, until now. But I will say, you know, now as I look to the sixth generation, there's going to be a lot more of them than than there even are of my generation. So It'll be something that we're constantly talking about and thinking through as we move from one generation to the next. 
I am curious on, um, there's obviously uh, plenty of examples of wineries that were fairly successful, but didn't have people to inherit. So they were sold to corporations, which, uh, you know, saddened a lot of consumers when they heard about that. I'm curious on what are the trade-offs of working with a family business or inside of a family business versus going external? Is there, is there a lot of politics or is it family dynamics that you have to get used to? I think coming from a point of view where I've done both, I've worked for the really big corporation and then I've also worked with my small family business. And, you know, I think what I see a lot of benefits versus trade-offs, I think. And, but, and that's from the seat I was sitting in, of course, when I worked for the corporate environment, you know, I, I was one of the people that helped their business go around, but was I, you know, critical for them? I don't know. Here I definitely am. And so I think I feel, you know, valued and excited in a way that I never have before, especially when you know that all the energy and passion and time you're putting into something, you're going to see the direct output of, you know, that's exciting to me. But I will say I was pretty nervous to come work for my family when they were courting me back. And I think what I was worried about was maybe some of the trade-offs that you're talking about. You know, I love my family, want to continue to love them. And I was worried that maybe there would be conflict or maybe we wouldn't see eye to eye. And that would that would create a problem or tension for me that I didn't want to experience with my family. And again, pretty boring. I have not experienced any of that. And a matter of fact, it's been so much more fun. And it's been fun because I get to work alongside people I really care about and respect on a daily basis. We're all very much in it together and we all very much respect each other's point of view. That's been really fun for me. Of course, there's family drama and politics. And, you know, I always say like the the dining room table is our boardroom table. And it was even when I didn't work there. So whether or not I was working for the business, I was still engaged in all of those conversations. I now may have a different point of view because I'm coming from somebody who's in it, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because when you are an owner, there really is no off switch. And so, yeah, but I, I would say... It's a special dynamic to be 100% family owned and to work with your with your family every day. And it's something that I certainly value. So does your family have any structures in place, whether it's family dinners, maybe within the business to keep everyone aligned and engaged? Yeah, absolutely. So the dinner table is certainly a hot spot for conversation. <laughs> don't come to our Thanksgiving if you don't want a turkey thrown at you. No, I'm kidding. But we have what we call a family council. And I'm trying to think how long this has been going on. But my cousin, Christine Wente, also fifth generation, she serves on our board, but she kind of started managing more family aspects from a business perspective. They didn't really need a family council when it was just the three and the fourth generation. You know, they were siblings, they did everything together. But when it became time to really start integrating the fifth generation into what's going on in the business, prepping them for if anybody wanted to come work, prepping us as owners, whether or not we wanted to work in the business, we're still going to be owners at a certain point. And we recognized that there was a need to create transparency between generations so that we all had an active seat at the table. So we have a family council where we meet once a year and we decide on topics that we want to either align on as a family 
educate ourselves on a family. I mean, some of these have been really dry meetings like tax law and, you know, education for the fifth generation to know how we as a business manage taxes and things like that. But then there's also been sessions on what do we want to be when we grow up? You know, what is your vision, Nikki, for us as a business? What is your vision, Phil, of like, you know, what would, what would you want Wenty to be one day? Or what do you want out of Wenty personally? So we, we have those conversations and we're open and honest with each other about them. And so I think that has been a really valuable meeting that we have once a year. And it's kind of evolved and changed shape as more of us have worked actively in the business. We don't spend as much time on business for that meeting now as we used to. Now we're starting to prioritize more like fun and bonding because we all work with each other so much. So I think there's an aspect of business, keeping everybody in the loop, but then making sure that we all recognize that we're family at the end of the day and appreciate each other and love each other. And as an example, oh gosh, I think it was two years ago at our family council, everybody had to go around the room and say what they appreciated about every person there. So we all had to say something about what we appreciated each other for, which is like very touchy-feely for my non-touchy-feely family. Like they're very, they're very conservative and like keep your emotions to yourself. But it was, it was like such a fun way to make them totally crawl out of their skin. And when I say them, I mean the fourth generation. And if they listen to this, I hope you laugh. But yeah, so, you know, we've done all different types of things from tax law to appreciations to, you know, just plain old bonding or talking about business strategy and what we want to be one day. That sounds like my nightmare and my fiance's dream. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, we had some of that. We, we had to like drag some people there by their collar. And when do you have to start attending this family council? Is this like, you know, at birth or, you know, are there babies there? There's not babies, but there are children there. And so I, I want to say maybe we were, I'm thinking my niece has definitely been, she's, a, she's 11. So yeah, we, we bring them in when they're, young enough that they'll, or I guess old enough that they'll sit there without freaking out. You know, we're not dragging five-year-olds to the meeting, but my cousin Christine's kids have been coming for a few years and they are, they're 14 and 15 right now. So yeah, we started young. And are there other structures within, you know, running the business itself? I'm curious to understand like within the, you know, the vision and mission of Wente Vineyards as a business is family incorporated in there somehow? Yeah, you know, it's funny, we used to have a vision around, you know, being a respected family owned winery or one of the most respected family owned wineries in the world. And we've sort of changed it to remove ourselves from the vision and make it more about our employees, our customers and our communities and making sure that we are providing you know, value to their lives for working with us, doing what we all do each and every day and staying focused on the wine. So I think family is inherent to everything that we do at Wenty Family Estates. And I'd tell you, if you asked an employee about what they liked about working at Wenty, is they'd probably tell you they felt like they were part of the family because that's the way that we talk to each other and act with each other. And, you know, like jokingly people on my team will say, hey, sis, because they think it's funny, first of all, but they also feel like part of the family. So, you know, we'll all laugh at my mom together. Like she's all of our moms sometimes. So it's just that I think that's just part of who we are. 
So I'm curious on how does family versus external management work? I think the last couple CEOs or presidents of Wente have been non-family members. Is that by design or is that just someone wasn't ready in one of the generations to take that role? Tyson Overton is our CEO right now, and he is the second CEO ever to be a non-family member CEO. And I think, yeah, I guess you could say it that way. A little bit of right time, right place. Carolyn Wente, my aunt, was CEO for 13 years, and she was ready to take a step down. And I think Tyson you know, was the best candidate for the role in the business at the time, and he's doing an excellent job. And I'd say he probably has an advantage in some aspect of not being a family member because he can kind of remove himself, take a step back. He can wager and balance between the you know competing wants or needs of different generations or different family members or even our board advisors. We have non-family members who advise on the board as well. So I think he serves a unique role. And I think he is, first of all, he's doing an excellent job and he's just an amazing person. In a sense, yes, it was it was definitely intentional to have him fill that spot. But you know, I don't think it's I don't think it's something that we'll say we always want non-family CEO or we always want family as a CEO. No, in general, we want the best person for the role to be doing that role. We're a business too at the end of the day, and we we want to succeed as a business and not just give family members roles because they're family members. Yeah, and, and how do you go about assessing which role should be hired from a family member versus external? I mean, obviously the state of business over the last 140 years has changed quite a bit. So I'm assuming you're going to use external hiring as a way to gain new skills into the organization? We don't create roles for family members. We are a business. And so if there's a role that we, let's say we post it and a family member wants it, a lot of the time we still interview for those roles to see what else is out there to make sure that we're making a smart decision. And sometimes the family member isn't best suited for that role. So they can either stay where they are or we talk about where they want to go like you would with another employee, right? You know, if they're not happy in their current role, okay, well, let's look at development plan and where you want to go eventually so we can start working on skill sets so that you can eventually move into the role that you're more interested in long term. We kind of take the same approach. Of course, a family member maybe has a little bit of an advantage. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like that doesn't happen at all. But there's a lot of debate and conversation that goes into decisions around making choices around a family member versus non-family member if there's somebody who wants a role. As being 100% family-owned, is it sometimes hard to incentivize non-family members to take certain high-level roles if you're not able to give them some ownership? Hmm. That is a great question. And I want to say that I'm sure those discussions have been had. I have not been privy to them. But I will say that I think we have a really impressive lineup of talented individuals who fill leadership roles across the company from, you know, our our new CFO, Hans Hartgens, who has a really impressive background from Gallo to our chief sales officer, Dave Enderly, who, you know, also Gallo Constellation to, you know, VP of HR. She came from Southern Wines and Southern Glaciers, Wines and Spirits. So like we have a lot of people with a lot of talent and a lot of great experience who are, as far as I can tell, very happy to be, you know, on the senior management team and leading the business without, you know, getting 
tied up in in ownership shares. Do you ever have conflicts between like family members and non-family members that need special resolution? I could just imagine if someone's new coming into the role, but as a family member and someone's external is there, like that that could sometimes be awkward because they have direct line or direct access to people essentially potentially above them through the family relationship. I would say that we're conscious whenever we put a family member under somebody who is a non-family member. That's actually the way we prefer it versus family managing family. And so we like to set them up for success. It's obviously conversations we have before we just put them in the role. Like we make them very aware. We make sure they're good with it. But, you know, I would say so far, and again, this is like where we're somewhat of a little drama is that our family, and I think it's sort of the way that we were raised, is I think our values are to like work hard and be nice to people. <laughs> That's the way that our parents raised us. You know, nothing is just yours. You need to work for it, earn it, earn your stripes. So I think so far, we've done a good job of setting ourselves up and our team up to be able to manage the expectations of family members as you would any other employee. You know, if a family member wasn't performing, we would have the same conversations with that family member as we would any other individual who was not performing because we have things to do. We're a mid-sized winery. So we sit in this interesting position where we're not big, but we're not small. So we have a lot to do because we're truthfully mid-sized, but we're competing with the big guys, right? Because we're on national distribution. And so we need to be able to perform. We need to be able to have a lot to offer and a lot of flashiness to get the distributor attention. And so if there is a weak link, it's felt by a lot of people. So whether you're family or not, and that's why I feel like we're a startup a little bit because we're all linking arms in this together saying we're mid-sized, but you can't ignore us. And that means we all have to come and bring our A game every day in order to stand up to the big dogs. And so I know this was about family members, but I think in general, performance is really important and we prioritize people and getting the best talent we can because that's how we are going to really show up. It's it's always uh, important to be able to compete and have the best people on the jobs. As the generations roll on and you move to new ones, new generations, and hopefully they become the best people into the company. I've heard other family-owned businesses have different structures in place so that if, you know, when one generation passes next or someone does want to sell or whatever, that they have like formula or other things that work. Does Wenty have anything like that helps that family culture and moves it to the next generation? No, I mean, we, we definitely have policies in place that, you know, if a family member doesn't want to be in the business anymore, you know, or say they want out and they want to sell their shares, of course, we have policies in place to figure out how, you know, then we remain family owned because that's our goal. We don't want to sell. We don't want to have a fractured business. And so we spend a lot of time making sure that those systems and structures are set up so that we can hopefully remain family owned for, you know, the foreseeable future and for generations to come. And I think some of that too is just the way that we, you know, it's sort of like I said before, the generations before us, their goal and their idea of success was being able to hand down a viable business to the next generation. I'd say that's my same goal. And I think that's sort of the, that's the vision that we like to instill in each generation to come and each member of the family. So we'll continue on that path. But so far, we haven't had to have the, any of those conversations 
because we have had a really engaged group of family members, whether they grew up wanting to work for the business or not. I'm curious because you, you keep mentioning that the goal is to pass on to the generation. And that's great to have that kind of like something historic in the family. But when you're competing with these larger companies or sometimes smaller companies, what advantages do you think that being 100% family owned really gives you in order navigating that space? To is it enabling you to make faster decisions, or is it is it enabling you know you guys are all working through a, a similar you know code or, or policy or, or mission statement that everybody's aligned on and just lets you adapt? Like what what is the real value of being 100% family owned and competing with these larger companies? Yeah. You know, for us, I think the value is that we get to, you know, we're not guided by shareholders or the stock market that is expecting us to have certain returns. Amount of profit as a business that we want to make is under our control. So if we want to put more value into different products, if we want to change things that we're doing, you know, our PL is our PL. And I think that that is a huge value of being 100% family owned. You get to control from top to bottom the products and organization that you run, it's your design. I think also, you know, I think that we value a lot our relationships that we've been able to have and maintain over the course of 140 years. And there is something special. I mean, you know, our partner Southern, like they've been our partner for a long, 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 long time. And they are family owned. So we have this connection, you know, and this is just one example. We have so many distributor partners that are family owned. And so we have this kind of special relationship and connection with them as well, where we understand maybe some of the pain points or some of like, you know, some of the opportunities and the one generation gets to pass on the relationship to the next generation. So then we're creating these multi-generational relationships with our business partners. And that's something unique and special that, you know, corporate companies can't say the same. And do you think in each generation you could look at like, here was a calculated risk or endeavor or pioneering? Because it seems like you're ge- the different generations, when you give the history, they did a bunch of pioneering. I'm just wondering if there's Hey, if we were a company, we wouldn't be able to do this. If we were a, a corporate, like with shareholders that weren't family owners, we wouldn't have been able to do this thing that was a maybe not a clear cut ROI at the time, but it panned out in the right direction. Hmm. That's a great question. Maybe things like building a golf course. I don't know that a corporate company would sign off on that and say, yeah, that's a great idea. Or a fine dining restaurant that we had, you know, we built in the 1980s. A, farm to table restaurant before farm to table was a thing. So, you know, I think we've taken, uh, those are just two examples I think that come to mind right away. I think some of like our lifestyle aspects that we've been able to kind of turn around and and bring out definitely are, are something that, you know, we were able to do this because we decided what we wanted to be when we grow up. It's interesting. So for all the other family wine businesses out there, what do you think are the three keys to kind of maintaining and evolving a multi-generational family business? I think transparency to what I was saying earlier about the family council, you know, opening the curtain, having those conversations at the boardroom or for the boardroom at the dinner table, you know, bringing family members in at a young age gets them to feel a sense of pride and a sense of understanding, respect. I think if you're a family business and you work with each other, you need to treat each other with respect. And we definitely do. And I think a lot of that, you know, is again, the way that we were raised, but we also have, you know, out of a fifth generation, I have a sister who's in viticulture, a cousin who's a winemaker and COO. 
I have a, another sister who was working at supply chain. I have a cousin who is, you know, into our kind of a nonprofit foundation work and business planning. And then I'm in marketing. So we all have different areas of expertise. And that helps us too to say, hey, you're the owner and the expert of your area. I do not know how to manage the vineyard, but you do and you do a great job at it. So we treat each other with respect and then fun. I think you have to have fun. If you don't have fun working in wine and working with your family, then what are you doing? So I think fun is a core pillar to success for family businesses personally. So we wanted to end this episode. We're going to do a two-part with you covering a different topic in the next episode. But we want to end this episode on a personal note. What was the most memorable wine you've drank in the last year and who did you drink it with? I think the most memorable wine I've had recently is, I mean, I could say so many different things, but what I will say is we just launched at our tasting room. We have a family line. And so we just launched an Ali's Pinot Noir. And that was pretty fun because I got to work with winemaking from beginning to end on, you know, picking the specific vineyard blocks it came from really like honing in on the style and really working with them to make a wine, which I've never done anything like that before, you know, other than being a marketing person and coming and tasting along and, and giving my opinion, but it was really a part of crafting it. And so I think it was really fun and it's a fun, beautiful wine. And so I'll, I'll go with that. And curious, what was the grape variety or grape varieties used in that wine? It's a Pinot Noir. All right. So it's just hundred percent Pinot and it's from our Arroyo Seco, our Riva Ranch Arroyo Seco vineyard in Monterey. Well, that sounds excellent. I love the answer. You got you to gotta love it. It has your name on the bottle. So uh, I think that'll, that'll suffice. Uh, but everybody else, uh, stay for the next episode where Allie's going to talk about another topic with us. But thank you for joining this episode, Allie. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Don't forget to support the show at xchateau.com or patreon.com slash xchateau. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.